Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Stoltz. In this episode, Mount Vernon's president and CEO, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, will talk with Kevin Hayes, Emeritus Professor of English at the University of Central Oklahoma, about his new book, George Washington, A Life in Books. As a friendly reminder, our next Ford Evening Book Talk will be on March 21st with the book, A Bloodless Victory, The Battle of New Orleans in History and Memory, by, oh, (laughs) that's my book. Uh, Also, be sure to follow us on social media if you don't already. Uh, We are on Twitter and Instagram at GWBooks and on Facebook at The Washington Library. Uh, And if you don't mind, uh, we'd also appreciate it if you would rate and subscribe our podcast uh, and let people know how much you're enjoying it. And now we join Dr. Bradburn and Dr. Hayes in the studio. Hi, welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the president and CEO of George Washington's Mount Vernon. And I'm delighted to have another conversation this morning with Kevin J. Hayes. Um, Kevin is an emeritus professor at Oklahoma, Central Oklahoma University, Central Oklahoma, in the English department, which uh, I know is unusual for some of our audience out there because he's he's not officially in a history department. But uh, why, why is that, Kevin? You write books about history, don't you? Well, I write books about literary history. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, with my specialty in the history of the book yeah. is uh, you know, some of, some of us are in English departments and some of us are in history departments. But um, to me, it was it was just a natural. When I first went to graduate school and I started learning in, about uh, literature, American literature, and uh, I realized how many opportunities there were in the colonial American uh, field. Yeah. And you know, in 18th century America, histories were uh, considered literature and. Mm-hmm. And I started studying and reading some of the histories of the time period and just, just loved them. And so I'm uh, interested in history as literature. Yeah, and the history of the book literature was really exciting, um, hot in the late 80s and the early 1990s, right? I mean, wasn't there a big explosion there? I think of um, Michael Warner's Republic of Letters came mm-hmm. out in like 87, maybe, something like that. Is that right? <clears throat> Yeah, and I mean that's when I uh, when I was in graduate school. And I, yeah. When I uh, started doing it, mm-hmm. uh, I mean I I thought it was still hot. I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> it is still. It's clearly hot. You know, you're out there doing great things with it. There's no doubt. I, I mean, I think that what I remember from grad school is I was in there a little later than you, but uh, one of the the big challenges was thinking about. Um, how people read, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the evidence of reading is really hard to come by. And we know well, people were reading, but it's sort of like how they read and how they used books. And well, it, it really is. And you know, part of the challenge is, you know, I used to teach my students this, is to, to, to see the story behind the bibliography and to, to read a bibliography not just as a list, but as a, uh, you know, as a, as a story, try to, try to see this mm-hmm. story behind it. And that was one of the biggest challenges I had with my students. Well, talk about why. Why is that? Why couldn't they get the sense of the bibliography as a, as a story in and of itself? Well, I mean, you have to know how to read a bibliography. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I can't think of an a early American example uh, off the bat, but one of the uh, books I can think of, for example, was uh, Wuthering Heights, mm-hmm. and you know this was uh, released in the eighteen eighties as uh, in a series called the Seaside Library. And you know, I would show show this to my students and say, well, "What what is this? Can you imagine what this book looked like just from this bibliographical entry?" And it said thirty six pages, uh, and it said you know how big the book was, and it was a, a really a big sized book. And they and then they started you know they hadn't even 
looked at how many pages it was, and they said, wait a minute, 36 pages and, and, and a 40 centimeters tall? Yeah. Is that an abridged book? Or, and I said, no, no, it's just a, a teeny, teeny tiny little print. Right. They, they took a, a full-size novel and reissued it in the Seaside Library as, as like a magazine mm. a format. And so this this is books that uh, people were taking to the beach and, mm. and uh, reading reading these classic novels at the uh, beach. That's through the seaside. Comes yeah, so that's why it's called this. With you to the seaside. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. And so so suddenly I was able to get them, you know, this whole picture envisioning these people sitting in their beach chairs uh, uh, far Rockaway, mm. uh, reading Wuthering Heights. Mm. Wow, <laughs> and in tiny print too. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a really good example. I mean, I think that uh, here, of course, at George Washington's Mount Vernon, we ha- we have uh, a number of George Washington's books, and that that question of which edition and uh, you know and and how was this bound and who bound it and and what version do we have and those are all things that you have to sort of ask before you can say anything about the book. Yeah, and it's extra- extraordinary how much. Uh I mean, I, when I first started doing this, when I did the William Byrd uh, Library for my doctoral dissertation, yeah. I mean, there there was no WorldCat. There was no online database where you could just look th- for these things. I mean, WorldCat didn't exist when you were working on that, really. No. Well, yeah, because there's no uh, no World Wide Web. <laughs> well, there were, there, <laughs> was, there was like there were there was Arlen. I mean, well, there wasn't was there like there was OCLC. Okay. And but that was impossible to use at that time because <laughs> to try and find a book, you, the way that it worked, yeah. I mean, I just can't even hardly believe this. You had to type in like the first three letters of the first word in the title and the second two letters of the second word in the title. Mm. Well, if you didn't know the title, you couldn't find it at all. <laughs> and I mean, I was using, I was using Watts Bibliotheca Britannica, which was yeah. which was done in eighteen twenties, and that's what I was using when I first started trying to identify William Byrd's books. Mm. Mm. Well, okay, so let's talk about that that pro- that first project. You've been a, a man who's worked in people's libraries and trying to get mm. in their minds that way. William Byrd, William Byrd II, is that who we're talking about? Yes. All right, tell, tell everybody who he is. William Byrd II was the, the greatest uh, bookman in, in Colonial Virginia, and he mm. had the, the, the best library in, in Colonial Virginia. Now, Thomas Jefferson's is, was better, but Jefferson's generally a later, later period. William Byrd was uh, early 18th century. Now, Jefferson acquired a lot of books throughout his life, and he bought somebody else's whole library or tried to. Uh, but where did Byrd get his books from? Well, his his father had a modest library, so he inherited his father's library. William Byrd the first. William Byrd the first. Yeah. And then he. Um, so we're talking about William Byrd the first died in what 1690, something in that 1695, I, something I like that. Exactly. 1700 maybe. I don't know. But he's one of these early Virginians. Mm-hmm. Built a lot of fortune on Indian trade, right? And, uh, and of course, had that property on the James River. Mm-hmm. Um, Near the Harrisons, Westover. Right, Westover. Right. right. So his son William Byrd II acquires some of his books. Yep, right. Uh, when he but dies. then he, you know, uh, he lived in uh, London for many years, mm-hmm. and so he bought a lot of books when he lived in London. And then he actively ordered books uh, when he was uh, living in Virginia. I mean, that's where you you yeah. go. You roll back to London. That's where you bought all your books. Was you ordered them from London. So did you have an inventory of his books to start with? Did you have a lot of correspondence where he's ordering well, books? What did you have? Um, after. After Bird's death, his library was inventoried, mm-hmm. and in fact, it, 
after and his son William Byrd III um, committed suicide in 1777, mm-hmm. and he William Byrd III was a drunk and a profligate and a gambler, and, and his his will stipulated that the library be sold to pay his gambling debts, and so the greatest library in the Colonial South was sold to pay gambling debts. Mm-hmm. And so, before it was disseminated, a catalog was made of its contents, okay. and then the the library was uh, bought as a whole and shipped up to Philadelphia from a guy who thought he could make money on it by selling it piecemeal. And then it was a big dud. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> it didn't sell well at all. But the the library was disseminated. Now, most of the books that survived, I mean, the largest concentration of them survived in the Philadelphia area. Okay, well, that makes sense since they made their way up there. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, William Byrd uh, the Second's um, library. Let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, what uh, what kind of books did he like? Well, Byrd the Second is known for his diaries, right? I mean, he's the right. one who's known as the great diarist, mm-hmm. sort of the you, the Virginian Peeps or something, uh-huh. right? I mean, right. He's got these great diaries, including the London diaries. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that and, and how useful those were or not. Uh, well, they really weren't uh, that useful. I mean, he would make note of everything that he read because uh, mm-hmm. he, he, he was part of his discipline. Because uh, he read every morning, like yeah. Greek and Latin, and yeah, I read, before he went to bed, maybe, mm-hmm. or something. But, yeah, I read Greek and Latin, and, and oftentimes he just says Greek and Latin or, or mm-hmm. Greek and Hebrew, uh, and he doesn't say what works he was reading. But every once in a while he says that uh, what titles of, of the books that he was reading. And so those were of some use, and I was able to annotate the en- entries with quotations from his diaries. Mm, okay, but right. the, the inventory itself uh, was the most useful yeah. uh, thing that I had to do my to base my catalog on. All right, so what do we learn about William Byrd II by looking at his, at his uh, collection of books? Well, he had very diverse interests. I mean, he was, he was a great classicist, uh, but also, too, he, he had a good collection of all the um, you know, restoration plays and, and mm. uh, essays of, of the early 18th century, and a, a very diverse collection, and, and strong in many different fields, a great law, law library as well. Yeah, so do, so is he a brilliant man, or is he is he unusual for his age, or is he just unusual that we have this documentation? Um, well, to, for a library that size, is very unusual. I mean, there were um, it was the lo- largest library in colonial America of mm-hmm. that time. Now, some people say Cotton Mather's was larger, but I I wrote an essay one time and called him even. <laughs> oh, you called him even. Uh, now, well, Cotton Mather mo- wrote more books. So yeah. But uh, you know, Franklin's was larger and Jefferson's was larger, but those are of a, a later time period. A different era, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move along then to another Virginian whose library you looked at, and that's uh, Patrick Henry. Mm-hmm. So Patrick Henry, uh, you know, had a developed a reputation in the 19th century as uh, being fairly unlettered, did he not? I mean, wasn't there this sense of him as a sort of protean mind, that you know, unschooled? Oh, really, very much yeah. so. And that's something that uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, helped to that. perpetuate. You know, Tom, uh, Patrick Henry is this natural man, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, <laughs> he, he, he got his laws, of, uh, he learned law from nature, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's why he was so uh, good at, uh, knew, knew so much about natural law. Well, as it turns out, in my research, I found that he had several volumes of natural law in his library and so it wasn't just <laughs> from from nature mm-hmm. and uh, so I was able to to overturn a lot of the stereotypes about Patrick Henry by looking at his library and and identifying the books that he owned he was a practicing lawyer Did, was it mostly law that he had well um, mostly law but he had uh, other bellatristic works uh, Don Quixote and, mm-hmm. and uh, Many other pleasurable works to read as well. He had a Don Quixote. Did yes. he have the big Spanish language Don Quixote from 1780? 
No, he didn't have that one. Uh, <laughs> okay. Did he read Spanish? Did, did, did no, it was in English. Any, did Henry have any other? La- did he have Latin? Did he have uh, any other languages? Um, I, uh, small Latin and, and yeah. less Greek, I, I think. But I mean, most, so most of his books are, were in uh, English or, mm-hmm. or law French. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. he could, uh, you know, if you if you studied law in the 18th century, you still had to read what was called law French. Uh, ah, okay. All right, now uh, tell me a little bit uh, then about why you decided to do this great book on George Washington, George Washington, A Life in Books, which you're going to talk about tonight with our audience. Well, after I I did my book on Thomas Jefferson uh, and looking at Jefferson as reader and uh, the books that he owned in his library and how he read them, um, you know, I started thinking about, well, what else, uh, what other uh, figures could I work on? And it hadn't occurred to me, George Washington hadn't occurred to me. I don't know why not. You know, because I was looking at a lot of uh, less obscure or more less obscure figures. Lights. Uh, like, hmm, somebody really needs to do Edward Pendleton. <laughs> There's a clamor for that. Right? Well, I, I was thinking about Charles Thompson, the Secretary of, oh, yeah. of the Continental Congress, who had an excellent library and um, and a very important figure in yeah. American uh, in the American Revolutionary story, uh, largely forgotten today. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I can do Charles Thompson, but then I thought, well. No. What am I thinking about Charles Thompson? No one's ever done George Washington. I mean, as, as many books about George Washington that have been published, no one has ever written a, a story of his, his reading life, of his literary life, of his intellectual life. Uh, and the reason why that is is people have kind of poo-pooed it. Oh, George Washington wasn't an intellectual. He didn't read. And mm. Well, uh, let's, let's reconsider that assumption and, and see how it holds up. And as, as I tell, tell about in my book, that there is a lot of evidence that shows that George Washington did read and, and, and did learn a lot from his reading. Yeah, okay. So we'll, we'll tease that because we want to talk about that. But let's take a quick detour back to Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who had the largest, grandest library, uh, certainly in the South, you know, by the time, you know, he sold it to the Library of Congress in, what, 18... Uh, 1816. Is that right? 14. 1814, okay. 6,234 books. That sounds right. Really? Okay, well, we just made that up. That's good. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was over 6,000. And they, uh, they did this great project of the Library of Congress. I don't know, were you involved in that at all? Were they... They tried to reconstruct that lot, where they tried to find all those books in their collections and put them back together. No, I wasn't. Put them on display, and they have them set up there. It's a very, very interesting. So, what's there, what What did What did you say about uh, Jefferson's reading and books? One thing, uh, since you mentioned the Library of Congress, I mean, it just and I I tell my students this that. Uh, when you go to the, any library that in the country that's organized according to the Library of Congress system, I mean that fundamental pattern for that is, is Thomas Jefferson's uh, organization of his library. When he sold his books to the Library of Congress, he sold them books in in, in cases as well, and and he didn't uh, unsell them. He see, he just boxed up and put fronts on the cases and, yeah. and sent them there, and so that you know he wanted it so they could just stand up the, the shelves as they got them, and they would already have this built-in uh, organizational scheme. Now it's changed, you know, somewhat. You know, now that it's ninety million volumes or a hundred million volumes, they've had to expand it. But <laughs> the basic structure is still Thomas Jefferson. Is that I mean, right? And so if what you is look that, at like what is if, that structure, if yeah. you go to the history section and mm-hmm. you look at. Uh, you know, there's there's New England books, and then there's you know New York and Pennsylvania and, and uh, Maryland, Virginia. They're organized geographically, okay. uh, yeah. and that's exactly the same way that Thomas Jefferson sort of coming down from right from the north to uh-huh. the south. And that's yeah. exactly where Jefferson yeah. organized his uh, history books, American mm-hmm. history books. Fascinating. 
Uh, what else? What else about Jefferson's uh, reading? I mean, he's known as a polymath, multiple languages, obviously obsessive, bought a lot mm-hmm. of books, couldn't stop buying books. <laughs> what, what, what did you add to our understanding? I cannot live without books. That was uh, yeah. one of his famous uh, quotations. Yeah. Um, you know, Jefferson's, uh, you know, like William Byrd uh, before him, and he actually he, he bought some of William Byrd's books that, as and they that's came in the sale in Philadelphia yeah. I guess. because they were, you know, they were still around in Philadelphia during the Continental Congress, and yeah. so uh, Jefferson uh, bought some of them uh, there. Um, but. I mean, he he was interested in many different subjects. I mean, law, of course, he had a great law library and a uh, great scientific collection uh, and a good collection of belles lettres. Mm. Um, no, something that's fairly consistent among Patrick Henry and uh, Jefferson and, and Franklin and, and Washington is they didn't care much for novels. Mm. I mean, the novel has really emerged in the 1740s, and there were tons of novels that were written in the second half of the 18th century, but not not much interest in among the the founding fathers for so they novels. Had the, they had the big ones. Yeah, they had they had Don Quixote. They had yeah. uh, you know uh, the yeah. ones Tom Jones. Uh, you know the, the yeah. really Tristan most, Shandy. Uh, Tristan Shandy. Uh, Tristan Shandy was a great favorite of Jefferson's, yeah. and so they they had the big ones. But uh, as far as reading a lot of novels, I mean, they really did they have like the Coquette. I mean, did they have like any of these the smaller American not written by Americans novels, seventeen nineties. Well, like uh, Wheeland, not uh, not really. Uh, Charles uh, Brockton Brown stuff. Did Jefferson have any of that? I can't recall. I, I read that stuff in an early American literature mm-hmm. class at Chicago with uh, Janice Knight. I think mm-hmm. um, I actually met my wife in a in an Mar- early American literature class at the <laughs> University of Chicago. She was getting a PhD in English liter- in, in literature. Mm. Uh, but I just remember those novels were awful. You know, they just were <laughs> all, really hard to read. Charlotte Temple. Uh, what is that about? I like these epistolary novels, right, <laughs> of seduction. And they were moralistic and, you know, predictable. Well, you know, that's uh, a strange thing about the teaching of American literature nowadays yeah. is that you you take a course in early American literature and you're reading all these early American novels, but these were not the books that people read in early America. I mean, yeah. people in early America, they were reading Swift and, yeah. and Defoe and Pope. They were reading English literature, not American literature. Right and, and so uh, <laughs> so we're feeding people stuff because uh, it's American uh-huh. uh, rather than thinking about okay what was what was being read right interesting well okay so what was being read uh, that Jefferson really really didn't like I mean was the stuff that he bought and he just didn't read it or did he read everything oh God. The knock on uh, the question of Washington would be, be kind of like did he read everything that he mm-hmm. has in his library. You know, and I would always say, well, everybody's given books that you never, uh-huh. you never read. I think there's a lot of people I gave books to who never read my book, you know, including people on my staff. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, let's well, let's move on to Washington, the a life in books. Um, you know, there's a, a very uh, an up and coming rising historian out there who, uh, who who writes this about this book, your book. In this new work, Kevin J. Hayes shatters the myth of an ignorant, unread Washington and does something even more difficult. Hayes not only has tracked down new discoveries in one of the most studied American lives, but he reveals a much more human portrait of the great man than most biographies have been able to reveal. That was written by me, yours truly, in a, uh, in a book review. So what do you think? Does that capture what, you're, what you do in this book? 
Oh, I think it really does. Uh, to go back to what I was talking about before, trying to find the, the story in the uh, behind the bibliography, and I think mm. that that's something that I, I try to do mm. in uh, in my book. Um, there was one story I was going to tell it tonight at the lecture about Jefferson, or I mean Washington, um, using looking up. You know, one is one of one of his favorite horses broke its leg, and you know, you just shoot the horse. I mean, that was what the only remedy. But there was, oh, uh, he just hated to lose that horse. He really, really liked it, and so he looked up. He had just bought a, a recent volume of farriery, and and it didn't say anything about. Uh, how to fix a horse's leg mm. and so he, he had an older book and so he looked in his older book uh, and it said how to do it and so I mean it, it was really a, a hard prescription you had to put the horse up in a sling uh, and then wrap you know put splints on its legs and wrap it up and, and the horse had to be in a sling for 40 days uh, and so I mean, wow. his horse was in the sling for about two days and then it rustled out of it and then they had to shoot it uh, but this is something that you know, I, I took these the information about the the horse farriery books that he had in his library, and then this tiny little diary entry. It was only a couple of lines long in his diary. Yeah. And but I was able to see the whole story, and it's a very touching story. As mm. the story of him, you know, caring about this horse so much that he really uh, hated to have to uh, destroy it. Yeah, that is a great story. I mean, I think I think that's you know, what you do so well in the book is humanize Washington, who's so. Distant, and mm-hmm. it's funny to think. I mean, I don't think people. Uh, I, I mean, I guess the reading is seen as an intellectual endeavor, so it's not always the most sensual, or you know, in that sense, not much connected to sort of the being in that way. But while you, you know, you really bring out these kind of stories about Washington to show him as an everyday sort of person mm-hmm. uh, in a way that's very, very helpful. Um, you know, one of the uh, uh, one of the chapters of the book I really uh, enjoyed, uh, you know, is is the uh, the work you did, um, you know, really looking at Washington's uh, uh, interest in math. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really, I mean, if he's passionate about a subject other than agriculture, which is what we talk about, uh, he, he really seems like he's he enjoys math mm-hmm. at a high level. Well, he his first profession was surveyor and. Uh, one thing that I found interesting is that if you if you look at his uh, school notebooks and then you can see him doing math problems and uh, you know some of these were you know by his tutor gave him but uh, the editors of, of Washington's papers conclude that I mean there's so many exercises in there mm-hmm. and they're they're so diverse that he must have been teaching himself mm-hmm. uh, how to do these problems and then one interesting thing that I found is that. You know, after he had already started his profession of being a surveyor, that he bought another book, and this is a book on conic sections and something that he didn't necessarily need to know to be a surveyor. But this yeah. shows that he's he's already extending his knowledge of mathematics even beyond what he needed to know for his profession. Yeah, I think that I like that. It's something you know that shows that he is naturally curious and has mm-hmm. you know this is a book with very little practical purpose mm-hmm. to it. Uh, and Washington is always called the practical founder, right. or he's so practical all the time. But this is really about a love of advanced geometry. Mm-hmm. And here's an 18-year-old, uh, you know, who's, who's taking his own. He's not in any kind of formal program of study, so he's doing this on his own. Right. Uh, we own that uh, copy of Washington's uh, uh, copy of uh, conic sections mm-hmm. uh, here. It's, I think it's the earliest book we own of his collection. It has this great 18-year-old signature in it, and it's. Uh, it's a dated signature, I think. 
What's that? I, it's a date. Didn't he date it? Date, uh, date his acquisition of it, or, or uh, I, th- I think so. He does. He dates it. He says something like, "This is purchased by me right. on this date." George yeah, Washington. That's a very rare thing because there's not very many books uh, of his that are are dated like that. Yeah, you, you also did really good research and work, I think, thinking about Washington's reading of um, the Spectator, mm-hmm. uh, the work, he, the reading he did with the Fairfaxes. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the Fairfaxes and what role their library or their reading interests might have had on George Washington's development. Well, I think that he really. Uh, Looked up to them very much and respected them, and he, uh, they were both models of the the proper English gentleman, and that's something that he, uh, at the time that he met the Fairfaxes, he was very much looking for models of behavior, and he found them in the Fairfaxes, and he also found them in the books that he was reading around the same time as the Fairfaxes, and I talk about I combine those both into one chapter, the yeah. the examples of of. of uh, Behavior that he read about, and the examples of behavior that he got from personal contact. Yeah, and that's at a time when his father has passed away. Mm-hmm. I think Lawrence is still alive for part of it, um, but the Fairfaxes are going to obviously be a, a big influence mm-hmm. um, going forward. But was there anything that surprised you when you started to dig into Washington a little bit? I mean, you were aware that very few people had looked at his reading per se, uh, but what 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 kind of what, what are the, some of the things that surprised you? Hmm. Academics never want to admit that they were surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, something that you had mentioned earlier is that you know, Washington always seemed a kind of distant uh, figure. Yeah. And uh, and then I had that impression too before I really started doing the work on it, and yeah. it really uh, let me see him in, in, a, in a more intimate light by looking at what he's what he's reading and what he's learning from from what he's reading. Yeah, I mean, there's small stories about his reading that really open him up, like these, the Don Quixote we talked about mm-hmm. earlier with uh, Patrick Henry's copy. Um, everybody must have been talking about Don Quixote at some point uh-huh. in, in Philadelphia. Right? Talk, that, talk about that story. Yeah, I mean, one of the things uh, that's that surprised me the most is that how... Um, Self-conscious George Washington was about the gaps in his knowledge. Mm. I mean, when you're when you're hanging out with uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and uh, Benjamin Franklin, I mean, you're hanging out with guys who know <laughs> read a lot more than you have. Mm. And you know, George Washington is this very strong individual, this person who could bend men to his will, and yet he was very self-conscious about his his reading and, and the gaps in his reading. Now, there was one uh, a great episode that he's gone back to visit Benjamin Franklin. Franklin has just come back from, from Paris, and you know they haven't seen each other in, in many years since before the war. Mm-hmm. And so um, Franklin is there showing off his library, and he's just finished building a new uh, addition to his house in, in Philadelphia, and he always showed his library off to uh, everyone who was interested in it. And How big was Franklin's library at his death? About 4,000 volumes. Yeah. Oh, very large, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, he, sh- he shows them this this copy of, uh, you know, this Spanish edition of, of uh, Don Quixote. It was just beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful books of the 18th century, it's considered. And then there was another, the Spanish ambassador was there at the same time. And so mm. uh, Jeff- Washington had never seen such a beautiful, you know, this beautiful edition before. And the Spanish ambassador 
kind of stores that knowledge back in the back of his mind. Oh, Washington doesn't know this. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, now I know what present to get him. And so he he got he acquired a copy of and gave this copy of this very lush, uh, lushly printed uh, Spanish edition of of Don Quixote to Washington. Of course, Washington couldn't read Spanish, and mm. so it's a nice thing to put on your shelf. But <laughs> he couldn't read it. But uh, at that same time, during the uh, this was during the Continental Congress. Uh, or, or the Constitutional Convention, I mean. Um, and so Washington bought a copy of Don Quixote in mm. English, an English translation of it at that time, so he could mm. uh, you know, catch up his reading. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great story because it shows Washington worried about these gaps, always wanting to correct mm-hmm. them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you've always, all of us have been at a dinner party where somebody mentions a book and, you know, and you got to say, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what you guys are talking about. They're like, what? You don't know this book? You know, I can imagine he was mortified at that moment. Mm. And yeah. Franklin probably said, well, you know, General, there's a new copy <laughs> down at such and such a store. Because the thing about that story is he bought that English language copy on the same day that he signed the Constitution. Right. So he's on his way out of town, yeah. basically, um, trying to stock up. Well, uh, fantastic. So one of the uh, obvious places, of course, where Washington is maybe known as a reader is in uh, his military reading. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about him as a as a as a general, uh, you know, what is he, you know, what is he reading? Is he reading everything, and it's we can't really tell the difference, or what? What? What would you say? Well, it's pretty interesting to look at his uh, acquisitions of military books because he didn't, it, he he didn't read any military books unless he was you know anticipating uh, military uh, actions or, mm-hmm. or uh, because it. In, during the French and Indian War, he you know then he started reading uh, military books. Um, right. So here then, he is. He's a young man. He's twenty one years old. He gets his first commission, mm-hmm. and that's when he first starts seeing military books. Uh-huh. Now, so it's not like he had a huge collection of military books before he was in the in the in the service. No, he, he really didn't, uh, mm-hmm. because it, uh, when, when he went on this this first mission, when he went into the wilderness to deliver this message mm-hmm. to the French. Uh, you know, there was one point where, you know, he got to the French fort and the French kind of left him alone, and he's looking around and he's 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 counting up how many canoes they have, how many boats they have, and measuring their fort, mm-hmm. and you know, recording a lot of important military information. And you know, I started thinking, how, where did he get that from? How did he know to do that? Because yeah. as far as I know, the only military book he had read up till that point was Humphrey Bland's you know, military, you know, the introduction yeah. to. Uh, Military tactics, well, and I was my conclusion yeah. that what it must have been uh, Caesar uh, uh, Caesar's commentaries. I think that's the the as far as I know the only the first two books military books he read was Humphrey Bland and then uh, Caesar's commentaries, and I think he got it from Caesar. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I that would be interesting, intriguing if he did. Now his Barbados diary, he does talk about the the military kind of fortifications mm-hmm. or or some kind of tactical. Aspects of the island. Of, of course, Barbados. he was with his brother at that time. His brother. So yeah, was, his brother knew all about that. He knew that stuff and maybe had told you know talked to him about mm-hmm. it, or you know he, he might have read some things in all the Spectator essays, all the mm-hmm. you know the magazine literature that he was right. devouring, and, and God knows what he was loaned by Lawrence. If Lawrence had a uh-huh. library or not, we don't really know, do we? No. Yeah. Uh, but the Fairfaxes had, had excellent. The Fairfaxes did. Yeah, so okay, so he's acquiring military books when he's, you know, in the field and mm-hmm. needs the stuff. Is there anything notable about, you know, the different kinds of things that he was reading 
let's say in the revolutionary era, what, what was he attracted to? Was it just everything he could get his hands on, or was it more, you know, towards a particular kind of a strain of writing? Well, what, one thing that I uh, discovered when I was doing my research is that mm. there's a remarkable continuity among his military books. Is that a lot of them have to do with the, the petit guerre, mm. the, the little war, the little skirmishes that you you know you send out a, just a few men out to try and do as much damage to the enemy as you can. And this is something that um, Washington is not necessarily recognized as, as, a, as a as a great expert in, in mm. the little war, le petit guerre. But I mean, if you look at his books, I mean, that's one consistency I see throughout many of his military books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and and uh, that sort of those that sort of that was those tactics were obviously they were old, but they that was getting more and more attention in Europe mm-hmm. in the seventeen fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. and and there must have been literature written uh, fairly recently that he was reading. Yeah, I mean the the books, especially French books, were coming out, and of course he couldn't read French, but uh, I mean as soon as the French book was translated into English, then he mm-hmm. he got a hold of it. And something, uh, I mean, this is just a, a kind of sidelight, something I didn't know, but uh, French, uh, the only, when, when West Point was started, the only two uh, mandatory subjects were French and, and mathematics. Mm. And the French was a mandatory subject at West Point because so many good military treatises were written in French. Yeah. So the French army was the best in the world and uh, known to be that. And Washington, it, you know, one of the, the anecdotes in your in your book that uh, is fantastic it speaks to this is the um, there's the the uh, Hessian soldier who mm-hmm. discovers the knapsack, the, the <laughs> officer, American officer's knapsack or you know backpack or whatever, uh, and it's you know all right, some booty, you know, some loot. Here we go, finally, you know, and inside of it is all books, right? I mean, this sort of all these <laughs> and American books, and, and and they were military treatises. And then he yeah. says something like, well, you know, you look in a British soldier's <laughs> backpack, and if they got any books, they're like plays. And yeah. then there's playing cards and and pomatum and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then the Americans have all these books. Yeah, that's it's a crucial part of the the story. Well, this is a, a fantastic uh, book, and you know I do think it it exposes a side of Washington that is really unknown. You know, he's always considered the dopey founder, who's mm. uh, you know uh, the tall, good-looking guy who's an important leader, but you know he's not the the brainiac. Mm. How smart was Washington? Do you think? Well, Jefferson calls him a military genius in Notes on the State of Virginia, and uh, he was pretty smart. Well, that's, there it is, folks. He's pretty pretty smart. I, I think he's he's one of the smartest uh, that, that we have uh, who've ever served in the presidency. Mm-hmm. And uh, curious, too, which is maybe even more important, you know, that sort of uh, uh, willingness to sort of try to pursue and chase down new thoughts mm-hmm. and see how they can be applied. I mean, that's, I think, you know, as you show in his agricultural reading, I mean, he's applying these latest innovative techniques. He's using experimentation. Mm-hmm. He's uh, combining that in his, in his, you know, in his correspondence with his reading, and you really see an engaged mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you, Kevin, so much for spending time. Uh, what's the next project? Are you going to get back to uh, Charles Thompson? No. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a, a biography of Mark Twain coming out uh, oh, next really? year. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And how how long have you been interested in Twain? Well, I uh, this is it's a short biography. It's part of a series uh, published in London. Uh, the series is called Critical Lives, mm-hmm. and I published a book on Melville about it uh, last year. Okay, and 
well, the editor liked my Melville book so much that he, he asked me if I could, can you do Twain? I said, oh, yeah, I can do Mark Twain. Now, I, I used to teach a Mark Twain seminar, which yeah. has proven to be very useful in, in writing about Mark Twain. Uh, although I started thinking about it, God, that was, when did I last teach that? Mm. 1998? Mm. And suddenly I realized that's 20 years ago. So I had to brush up my Mark Twain scholarship. But, you know, it came back to me, and I enjoyed very much writing uh, mm. writing about Mark Twain. I gave a talk uh, at the Lotus Club in New York uh, once on Mark Twain and George Washington. And uh, because Mark Twain writes a short biography of George Washington, mm-hmm. and he writes a lot of things like a, an anecdote of the young George Washington. <laughs> and these are, of course, jokes uh, mm-hmm. when you get into them, because the anecdote of young George Washington. You know, starts out like I want to tell you an anecdote of the young George Washington, which <laughs> is about his uh, honesty and how he could not tell a lie. And but before I get into that, I want to really tell you about my neighbor next door and how the neighbor <laughs> is trying to learn a new instrument. And an adult should never be allowed to learn a new instrument. It goes on and on about this neighbor. And at the end of the essay, it basically says, "Well, I intended to tell you an anecdote of the youthful George Washington, but you can bet there was something about a." cherry tree or an apple tree or something like that you know so it's kind of this Twain is uh, the 19th century newspapers are filled with all this sort of really saccharine stuff of, you know mm-hmm. a young an anecdote of the young George Washington he's he's using it for humor and Twain as you know when, when he would travel around and you know these like lectures that he would give and everywhere in America's got these these streets or plazas that are Washington mm-hmm. Street Washington Avenue Washington Plaza and he would say, yeah, I was walking around earlier in your street on Washington Street. I, you know, uh, he's got, he's such a great man as he could not tell a lie. Well, I don't think that's so great because I can tell a lie, but I choose not to. <laughs> <laughs> so Twain is uh, 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 great with, with Washington, I think. Anyway, all right, so that's a little sidebar. Uh, well, he did the yeah. same thing with Franklin, too. Said, I did. You know, talking about, oh, you know, what, uh, poor poor kids these days. Every time they try to do something fun, the, the parents throw Franklin in their face. And, and they say, <laughs> <laughs> why don't you be like that? Yeah, uh, that's really good. Anyway, okay, so that little sidebar notwithstanding, but thank you so much for coming sure to Mount Vernon and, and sharing your work with us. And uh, uh, good luck with everything, and we look forward to hearing you tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.